I was nine when the Second World War broke out in Europe. I was 15 when it finished. So my adolescence was spent in wartime. We had a two-year post-war period where the question was, well, who won this war anyway? It doesn't look much different. And then we were in the Korean War. And so from the age of nine to the age of 21, basically what I knew was war. I remember going to school one day, I was probably 10 or 11 at the time, and instead of the usual boisterous boy play going on, there was a very subdued group of boys talking. And the conversation went something like this. I hear that they really caught it on the west end of town last night. Yeah, one of these new bombs that the Luftwaffe are dropping uh, landed on a row of houses. Yeah, they call it a landmine. Yeah, my, my dad says that uh, everybody in that row of houses were asleep in their bed and they never knew what happened to them. They were just blown to kingdom come. And that was an expression we used to hear all the time. People were being blown to kingdom come. Uh, I, I wasn't a total stranger to the expression kingdom come. Uh, in the numerous discussions that I had with my mother, seeking to educate her, trying, <laughs> trying to bring her round to my considered opinion on everything, the conversation usually ended with her saying more or less the same thing. Stuart, you can argue till kingdom come. <laughs> Nothing will change. Kingdom come. Kingdom come, whatever it was, was what happened to you if you were unfortunate enough to have a bomb drop on your house while you were in bed. You wouldn't know anything about it. You'd be blown to kingdom come. Kingdom come was also something in the ill-defined, indeterminate future. We didn't quite know what it was. We didn't know when it would happen. It was a vague reality of some kind. We knew, of course, that the expression came from a prayer that Jesus taught his disciples. You remember the prayer, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come. But in all honesty, we had to admit that we had learned this prayer without ever really being taught what it meant. Our Father who art in heaven, who art didn't make sense anyway. We didn't use those words. In heaven, hallowed be thy name. We didn't know what hallowed meant. Jill was a school teacher and she was teaching the Lord's Prayer to her class in English school system one day. And she heard one little boy very enthusiastically praying, Harold, Harold, be thy name. 
and she was able to give the Almighty, he was able to give the Almighty his Christian name, Harold. That, I think I understand why the little boy was confused because the prime minister at the time was Harold Wilson. And he had pretensions to almighty status. <laughs> Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. We, we, we knew the words without any understanding at all. And that's not uncommon. You probably heard the story of the football team, American football team, won the championship. The coach took the team back into the locker room and said, okay, guys, we're going to pray. We've won, so we'll pray. And he turns to one of his assistant coaches and he said, hey, Tom, you pray the Lord's Prayer. Two of his colleagues, rather cynically, leaned across to each other and said, $10 says he doesn't know the Lord's Prayer. So he says, all right, let's pray. Now I lay me down to sleep. And the other guy said, no, I was wrong. He knew it. <laughs> That's about how we, how we are with this Lord's Prayer and Kingdom Come. And then it turned up here. So I thought I should spend the time defining it. Because it was a good thing to know what we're talking about isn't it? Kingdom come. All right, so let's dive into the Bible and see what we can learn about kingdom come. Now, I've already shown you the, the Lord's Prayer is where we get the expression kingdom come, and the Lord's Prayer is to be found, among other places, in Matthew chapter 6. I want you just to turn back, if you've found Matthew chapter 6, I want you to turn back a couple of pages to Matthew chapter 4. And this is what it says, Matthew chapter 4, verse 12. When Jesus heard that John had been put in prison, he returned to Galilee, leaving Nazareth. He went and lived in Capernaum, which was by the lake in the area of Zebulun and Naphtali. Now that is simply a piece of information that brings you up to date on the itinerary of Jesus, the traveling preacher. And you say, well, okay, that, that's interesting. Not very, but interesting. Now, the next two words are critical, however. He then says, to fulfill. To fulfill. In other words, Jesus upstakes in Nazareth, moved his base of operations to Capernaum in the land of Galilee was a profoundly significant thing because in doing that, Jesus fulfilled what was said through the prophet Isaiah. And then he quotes what the prophet Isaiah said. Now, I want you to notice that word, fulfill. Now, just turn back, if you will, to chapter 1 of Matthew. I'm going to read a few verses to you, but you'll notice the connection very easily. Chapter 1, verse 22. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. And what the prophet had actually said was that a virgin would be with child and give birth to a son, 
and his name would be Emmanuel, which means God with us. In other words, the prophet said that. He said that approximately 600 years before Jesus was born. But Matthew says the fact that Jesus was born under those circumstances was a direct fulfillment of what God had predicted through his prophet, all right? So that's chapter one, verse 22. Chapter two, verse 15. So he got up and took the child and his mother during the night and left for Egypt where he stayed until the death of Herod. And so was fulfilled, okay, here it is again. So was fulfilled what the Lord had said through the prophet, out of Egypt I called my son. Fulfilled. All right, now verse 17 of chapter 2. Then what was said through the prophet Jeremiah was fulfilled. Now verse 23. And he went and lived in a town called Nazareth. So was fulfilled what was said through the prophets. He will be called a Nazarene. Now chapter four. And this is what he, he moved to Galilee in order to fulfill what was said through the prophet. Okay, now you get a prediction and it happens. And somebody say, it's a coincidence. You get two things predicted and they're fulfilled. You say, oh, what an amazing coincidence. You get three things predicted and fulfilled. The more predictions are fulfilled, the less likelihood there is that it is a chance coincidence. If you get 15 of these things stipulated by Matthew in his gospel, and all these predictions that are hundreds of years old are fulfilled in the life of Jesus, The whole point of recounting them is to teach the recipients of this gospel a profoundly simple, significant lesson. It is this. God, through the prophets, predicts the future. And when the future unfolds as he predicted it, people look back and say, God knew what was going on. God actually knew what was going on? And then they take it a step further. How did he know what was going on? And the answer is because he's God. And then they say, well, if he's God, what does that mean? It means he's God and we're not, and he's in control and we're not. And then we say, well, if he's in control, what's he doing? And the answer is, he is showing us that he has a plan and he has a purpose and that it is being fulfilled in Jesus who has come. All right, one more scripture for you. Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6. For unto us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God everlasting father, prince of peace. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on 
and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. All right, that's another prediction on the part of the Lord revealing it through the prophet Isaiah. Now, what is this prediction? A virgin will have a son, a child. This child will be born an unusual child. This child will have the government placed on his shoulders. And amazingly, even though he is a child, he will be known as Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And this government that will be placed on his shoulders will go on increasing and increasing and spreading and its influence will go on multiplying. And the influence that it will have There will be a spread of peace. There'll be a spread of justice. There'll be a spread of righteousness. And it will go on growing inexorably. And this reign, this government that will be placed on this child that is born is something that will go on forevermore. Forevermore. That's the prediction. That is what the prophet is saying. When Jesus comes, he's the child who is born. When Jesus comes, he begins to talk about the government being placed on his shoulders. He begins to preach peace. He begins to talk about justice. He begins to talk about righteousness. And when Jesus moved into Galilee, this is what he announced. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has arrived. And this is a statement of fulfillment of what Isaiah had been saying. So we put all this together, and what do we discover? God is God, we're not. He's in charge, we're not. He knows what he's going to do, predicts it, and we find it is fulfilled in Jesus. And what we find is fulfilled in Jesus is the fact that Jesus will reign where'er the sun does his successive journeys run. And he will reign, and he will reign in righteousness, he will reign in justice, he will reign in peace. The increase of his transforming ministry will go on and on and on, and his reign will go throughout the history of time and this world as we know it, on into eternity, and he will reign forever and forever. And Jesus, when he moves into Capernaum, summarizes it all, and he says, the kingdom has arrived. And that was a dramatic statement he made. What we're learning, of course, is that God has his eternal purposes and his eternal purposes are focused on Jesus and Jesus is seen to be the king of the eternal kingdom and that the eternal purposes of God are going to be worked out in the coming kingdom. Now, what do we mean by kingdom? When we think about a kingdom, we may think about a certain geographical graphic on a map. What this means when it talks about kingdom is fundamentally the rule and the reign or the power of the king being manifest in human 
experience. Now it can be a benevolent rain, it can be a malevolent rain, but it's all about the rule of the king being imposed on the people. The kingdom of God, that's all about God ruling and reigning in the affairs of men. The kingdom of God is that sphere of human experience in which God is God. That sphere of human experience where the power of God is clearly in evidence. And that is what God is outlining as being his plan, his purpose. Jesus would come into the world and the government would be on his shoulders. The increase of it would know no end. It would be all about peace and justice and righteousness. It would be established and it would be established and supported forever and forever. And there in a nutshell is the plan and purpose of God for this world of ours. Do you believe that? You see, you look at this world right now and you say to yourself, what a mess. It's getting a bigger mess, seems to be hopelessly out of control. Evil is triumphing on every hand. What a mess this is. Seems to be spinning hopelessly out of control. They're telling us global warming is going to come and all the ice packs will melt and cities will be deluged people will be swept away, never to be seen again. Earthquakes will happen. We're going to find half the continental America is swept off into the sea. There are forest fires. There are tornadoes. Nature itself seems to be in rebellion. We've got fiendish movements that are terrifying people. We don't seem to be able to cope. Things are getting out of hand. A lot of people are giving up. A lot of people are saying, this, is, this thing is hopeless. Some of them are simply settling down into low-grade depression. Other people are just pulling the bedclothes over their heads and wishing the world would go away. And other people are simply carving out a comfortable little corner and they don't care what happens to the rest of the world just so long as they can eke out a comfortable existence for themselves, and they're all overlooking one thing. God is building his kingdom. And it started when Jesus arrived on the scene. The announcement he made, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. What does this kingdom of heaven actually look like when it comes? Well, one of the things that Matthew told us was a story about Jesus. Jesus was ministering one day and he confronted a man who was possessed by demons. Now, some of you are going to switch off immediately and say, oh, come on, don't give me this demons stuff. I'm not into demons and the devil and all that kind. All right, well, I understand. But look at it this way. Do you believe in evil? Do you believe in evil? Just as a philosophical concept, do you think there's such a thing as evil? Do you think there is something that is the antithesis of good? 
<laughs> I'm finding more and more people who are sort of quietening down on their resistance to the idea of evil, and they're beginning to accept that there is such a thing as evil. Well, if you have a trouble with the devil and demons, but you don't have a problem acknowledging evil, just think of evil personified and you finish up with the devil and demons. Now, the devil and demons had possessed this particular man. And this particular man that Jesus confronted asked for help. It's very interesting. Jesus, for whom a prophecy concerning him had just been announced. And part of that prophecy was this, the spirit of the Lord will rest upon him. It was our friend Isaiah again. The spirit of the Lord will rest upon him. Jesus, do you know what he did? He confronted this man possessed by the demon, a victim of evil, if you like, personified. And so powerful was the confrontation that Jesus addressed him in the name and in the power of the Holy Spirit who rested upon Jesus. And immediately the forces of evil were overthrown. And the Spirit of God ruled in that man's life. Now the skeptics there said, oh, he cast out Satan by using the power of Satan. Jesus said, that's nonsense. That's nonsense. Satan doesn't fight Satan. If Satan fights Satan, then his house will be divided. And a kingdom that is divided cannot stand. It wasn't Satan's power that I used to overthrow the power of evil in this man's life. It was the power of the Spirit of God. And then he said this, and this is crucial. If you have seen the power of the Spirit of God overthrow the forces of evil, the kingdom has come upon you. And there is your definition of the kingdom coming. It is when the Spirit of God takes on evil head to head and wins. And it can happen in all spheres of human experience. The whole world, we are told, lies in the wicked one. The reason the whole world lies in the wicked one is that God made it perfect, handed it over to human beings, and these human beings were to be his agents, overseeing it, controlling it, developing it, enjoying it to the glory of God. Accountable to God, but with enormous freedoms and glorious opportunities to live in the fullness of their humanity as God's agents on earth. And you know what happened to them? These agents, in whom all authority over the heavens and the earth had been placed, and according to the mandate of God, they reneged on their responsibilities. They sold out to the devil, and the result was they traded that which had been put into their trust, and it became a trust of Satan himself, and evil reigns. Do you have a problem recognizing evil reigns in our country, in our world, in our families, in our marriages, in our hearts? Of course not. How did it get there? It wasn't there originally 
It was when man traded that which God had committed to them and handed it over to the evil one. The whole world lies in the wicked one. And God says, that's my world, and I want it back, and I'm going to reestablish my rule and my reign. The kingdom is coming. And when Jesus arrived, it had burst on the scene. This morning, really early, the sun was just a tiny little sliver of brilliance on the horizon. But as we were driving due east all the time, guess what was happening? It seems as if the sun was slowly but surely, relentlessly, inexorably rising and rising and rising and rising. And as time went on, if we'd spent all morning and just stayed out in the sun, we could have watched the sun arrive at its zenith in all the fullness of its glory. The kingdom arrived with Jesus, where God says, this is my world, I want it back, and I, in the power of the Spirit, am going to overcome the forces of evil in human experience wherever they are to be found. Internationally, nationally, in countries, in cultures, in ethnic groups, in families, in marriages, and as Solzhenitsyn put it, when he tried to identify the line between good and evil, when he lay in a communist prison camp in Siberia, he said the line between good and evil went straight through his heart. And he found that he was capable of untold evil whilst he was capable of remarkable good at the same time. That's me. I'm capable of lust. I'm capable of greed. I'm capable of anger. And all you need is lust, greed, and anger. And give it plenty of watering and give it plenty of sunshine. And it will grow and it will reproduce and it will produce its bitter fruit. And evil wins. Wherever evil is to be found, the Spirit of God is alive and ready to counter it. And when we willingly repent and willingly submit, then we begin to discover the increase of his government knows no end. And the kingdom has come. But the kingdom has come. But Jesus said that they were to pray thy kingdom come, which must have been a bit confusing for some of the students. Master, you said the kingdom has come. That's right but you've told us to pray it will come. That's right. Well, has it come or do we pray it will come? The answer is yes. <laughs> it has come like that sliver of light in the sunrise, but it hasn't fully come like the sun at its zenith. But scripture tells us about the kingdom coming and arriving at its zenith. Let me just read it to you here. The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever. Now, those of you familiar with the Messiah, you'll remember that tremendous chorus when they begin to sing this. You probably sung it in one of the choirs at times. I've done it on numerous occasions, but when I think about it, 
I'm thinking to myself, this is the zenith. This is the kingdom fully come. It arrived, well, it was predicted, first of all. Then it arrived when the baby was born, the mighty God, the wonderful counselor, the one on whose shoulders the government rested. Then he arrived on the scene 30 years of age, and he says, now the kingdom is, has arrived. And then he says, now pray that it will continue to come. And then we look into the distant eternal future, and the kingdoms of this world will become the kingdom of our God, and the kingdom will finally come. Now, where, where are we? on that continuum. I love the picture of the Spirit of God encountering the forces of evil in the human heart of the individual. Do you find that happening in your, in your heart? I love the picture of the, the Spirit of God moving into a troubled marriage and dealing with the evil that is the problem with that marriage. I love to see communities being changed. I love to see ethnic groups coming together. You know what I'm talking. I love to see the kingdom arriving. But the question is this. What really is going on? They tell me in Wisconsin, if you don't like the weather, just wait a minute or two and it will change. Recently, it dropped about 20 degrees in about a couple of hours. The explanation, of course, is this. A cold front from Canada has come down. The old cold fronts seem to originate with Canadians. <laughs> Some Canadians objected, so I said, I'll give equal time to Alaska. A cold front from Alaska has come down, and it has met a warm front coming up from the Gulf of Mexico. And you know what happens when a cold front meets a warm front, don't you? tornadoes, hailstone the size of baseballs, storms, thunder, lightning, all nature goes berserk. And ladies and gentlemen, when the Spirit of God confronts the forces of evil, it's not a picnic. It's called spiritual warfare. And that is precisely where the church belongs today. You say, why does the church belong there today? Well, just one more verse and then I'll have to stop. Matthew also told us this. This gospel of the kingdom must be preached in all nations as a testimony against them. Now listen. Then will the end come. This gospel of the king. What's this gospel of the king? Well, that's what I've been trying to tell you. This good news about God being God and establishing his kingdom and giving us all the information we could probably wish for and all the underlining and undergirding so that we can believe it with confidence and build upon it. This gospel of the kingdom is unknown. Is unknown to vast numbers of people in our world. And Matthew says, it needs to be proclaimed in all nations as a witness against it. 
You see, because when the nations begin to read about the kingdom of God, and they look at the fact that they've only been interested in the kingdom of this world, then the preaching of the kingdom to them is a witness against them. But the whole point of this statement is this. The end will come. The end of this world as we know it will come. When? When this gospel of the kingdom has been preached in all nations. And here's a very simple question for you. Who's going to do it? And the answer, of course, in case you're not sure, is those who believe it. Those who believe it. And the whole point of this is in order that we might take some time and identify our experience of evil. First of all, what is my experience of evil in my own wicked heart? Is it lust? Is it greed? Is it anger? Are these latent things bearing fruit and manifesting and morphing into actions? Are these actions having impact in relationships? Are other people being affected? Evil reigns. What's needed? What's needed is repentance and submission to the gracious work of Jesus, who crucified and risen, sending his spirit into our hearts so that in the power of the spirit, the cold front, the cold front of evil might be driven back and the warm front of grace in the spirit might have come. But then it's got to spread and spread because the increase of this government will be utterly endless and it will be an eternal reign. So I ask myself a question, not only what is the evidence of evil in my heart that needs to be rolled back in the power of the Spirit, but what role would I expect to play as a member of the Church of Christ on earth, right on the collision course of the cold front and the warm front? What role would I expect to be playing? And the answer is this, I would be having some role of some nature in this whole business of making sure that the gospel of the kingdom is going out to the nations. Now you can decide the specifics of that role, but let's go away with this simple thought. Kingdom has arrived. Kingdom is still coming. Kingdom will come. Kingdom is in evidence when the Spirit of God is rolling back the forces of evil. The church is on a collision course between the forces of evil and the activity of the Spirit of God. What precisely is my role on that collision course in that struggle between good and evil, that struggle between the Spirit and the forces of darkness? And what am I willing to do?